Welcome to That Sacral Mm-hmm Podcast, the show where we get intimate with our human designs in order to guide ourselves towards our most pleasurable life and leadership. One of my favorite things and one of the things that make my sacral go mm-hmm is watching leaders like you claim their embodied legacies. From vulnerable shares and learning lessons to expert advice offered through the HD lens, I hope you find something here that you can take along with you on your journey to creating yours. The world needs more leaders dripping in their vitality and serving their mission from the overflow. Your time is now. Welcome to the space, and without further ado, let's jump in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode where I'm going to be following the sacral pull to talk about a book that I just finished. So before we begin, I just want to make sure that you know and that you hear me that there will be spoilers in this episode for the book, Hello Stranger by Catherine Center. There will be spoilers. So if you're reading that book or if you're going to read that book and you don't want the ending spoiled and you don't want the parts in between spoiled, stop listening right now. Go out and get the book. Go out and finish your book and, um, and then come back to this episode because today I'm going to be talking about my perspective on the book and talk about it with human design woven throughout which I'm really excited about. Um, This is something that my sacral has been pulling me to. Um, This year in 2023, I've had the goal on Goodreads to read 25 books, um, which doesn't seem like a lot, but I was not making time for reading in past years, and it's definitely a pleasure portal for me. It's something that really um, enriches my experience of life, and so I set out to make time for that. And with this book, I hit that 25 book mark. Um, And I just felt in my body that I had wanted to start talking about books here on the podcast and on my uh, different platforms um, because I love them so much. And uh, this feels like a really exciting time to, to do it. So I'm thinking this will probably be the first of many Um, episodes where I'm talking about books that I've read and sharing with you the human design elements through my perspective, not only so that you can learn more about human design, but so that I can open a window into my own perspective based on my design. So your perspective of this exact book, if you read it or if you've read it, may be different than what I come come up with. And um, I think that's the interesting thing about all of our human designs is that We all have very unique ways of processing information, taking in information, and very different ways of viewing the world and relating to the world through our bodies. So I feel like this is um, an interesting topic to kind of dive into. So yeah, last call for spoilers, last call for you stopping this podcast right here, (laughs) and we can begin now. Okay, so I have the most delicious setup right now. It's been raining really hard where I live for the past two days and yesterday after I got some work done I lit a fall scented candle. Don't come for me. I know that it's still August but I've just been feeling this really strong pull for the seasons changing and I know a lot of people are that way with fall Um, and it's not singular to me but 
you know, as a markets environment, I can feel my body sort of regenerating at the very tail end of um, a season. This always happens, whether it's from fall to winter or summer to fall or what have you. And um, my pleasure practices start to transition as well. So yesterday with all that rain, I lit my fall scented candle. I got under the covers and I started to um, finish this book because I was at like the halfway point. And I actually finished all of it uh, yesterday. And today it's raining as well. So if you hear in the background some thunder, some rain, um, that's just the natural environment that I'm in. And also I feel like it gives really good book reading vibes and cozy vibes. So I'm here for it. Like I said, today we're going to be talking about the book Hello Stranger by Catherine Center. This book was a book that I received through my book of the month subscription. My best friend gave me a book of the month subscription um, like little package for my birthday this year and it's been such an awesome gift to like a gift that keeps on giving because each month I'm gifted a book that I might not have seen or might not have picked before. Um, I think I would have picked this one before. It's definitely got me written all over it. It's number one, it's like a, a romance, like a rom-com in a book, which I really enjoy. Um, and it was interesting because at the end of the book in the author's note, the author shares a little bit about why people love romance novels or rom-com-esque books. And we'll talk a little bit about that um, when I get to some of the motivation and human design conversation later in this podcast. But um, but yeah, this one was definitely one that I would have picked just from the um, description. It seems like something that, uh, like an interesting premise. So if you're not aware or if you, you know, don't plan on reading the book, this book is about um, Sadie, who is an artist. And she's just, you know, kind of in that, that part of her life where nothing seems to be going right. She's not making a lot of money. She's living in this sort of like uh, dual purpose living space that's not actually a living space. It's like part studio and she, she keeps calling it a hovel. So it's like part studio, part hovel where she lives and works. Um, and she just, she just is on some bad luck. But then at the beginning of the book, she begins to think, oh, maybe my luck is turning around because she places as one of the top 10 finalists in this um, art competition. Um, and this is something that she's wanted for a really long time. We find out later that her mom, who has passed away or who passed away when she was much younger, um, also placed in this competition and never got to um, give her final submission because she passed away. So there's a lot of like deeper meaning with her placing in this artist competition. And uh, at that point, her friend decides to throw her a party and she goes down to the store to try to buy some wine and different things for the party and, um, you know, kind of like thinking, oh, maybe my luck is turning around and she doesn't have enough money to buy um, the, the different items. So this guy at the store offers to pay for her, ends up paying for her, and um, she's definitely someone that does not like to accept help. She's very independent ever since her mother passed away. She, you know, had a falling out with her family for various reasons that are that unfold throughout the book. And um, she's just not someone that 
like does not, she's not someone that accepts help. (laughs) So, uh, so, so he ends up buying the stuff for her anyways. And as she's leaving, she's kind of like arguing back and forth with him about, you know, why did he buy this for her? He wants to carry the bag for her. She doesn't want him to, et cetera, et cetera. Um, until finally they part ways. And as they part ways, she steps out onto the street and, um, froze in the crosswalk. Later on, we find out that she had a seizure that was brought on by a lesion in her brain. And at the hospital, the doctors are recommending that she gets this brain surgery, but she's sort of in this like in between stage where she's like, I want to get the brain surgery. I'm afraid, but I know I should, but also I have this competition that's coming up and I only have a couple of weeks to finish my portrait for the competition. So she decides to put it off, but then, you know, one thing leads to another and her dad convinces her to get the surgery. She gets the surgery, everything seems fine, and then she finds out that she can no longer see people's faces. She has something that is called prosopagnosia. I looked that up to how to say it, so hopefully I said it right. Um, And I'm going to put below a um, link a couple links to YouTube videos. I went on YouTube to try to figure out how to say it. And I actually found two really interesting videos um, that kind of talk about um, this diagnosis and also talk, you know, one in, one of the videos actually interviews someone that um, lives with this and it talks sort of about his process for navigating the world with it. But anyway, she has pros- prosopagnosia and they're not sure. Um, they know that it came from the the surgery and some of the you know after effects of the surgery but they're not sure if it'll go away when it'll go away you know so um she's she's someone that does portraits for a living she has an etsy shop she's also going into this competition and so this like really rocks her world and she's like you know i don't know what i'm gonna do basically if previously you were like I don't think I'll read it. I'll listen to this episode. And then you just heard that stellar um, <laughs> synopsis of the the first be- like the first couple chapters of this book. And you're like, oh, I, I kind of want to read it. Um, you're welcome. And two, then stop here because I will be getting into things that give away a lot of the book now as I talk about, you know, my experience and the, the human design of it all. Um, everything I've set up until this point literally happens in like the first two chapters so you should be good if you stop here and you start reading just as a recap so that you understand where i'm seated in my perspective here is my human design in a quick couple second uh download for you so i'm a three five manifesting generator with an emotional authority i have all nine centers defined um my determination is hot thirst my cognition is smell. My motivation is hope. Um, I am split down the middle, left and right in my variables. Um, and yeah, I think this, especially like the definition that I have in my chart, I think it really impacts how I look at other people and, you know, look at them through the lens of human design. Um, but also it affects how I characterize different movie and books and show characters um, based on human design. So 
a lot of times what you'll hear is um, conversations in the human design space about like, I believe that this character is a projector or this character is a three line or this character is a six line or they have this determination or whatever it may be. Um, and they're sort of giving you the download of what that character might be based on that person's knowledge of human design. For me, when I'm reading this book, I'm not so much trying to decipher, okay, what's what's Sadie's human design? What's Joe's human design, et cetera, et cetera. I'm thinking about it through, can I relate to this through the lens of my own human design and when what pieces really, you know, ignite me, what pieces feel um resonant to me, different things like that. That could be because I've been in the human design space for a little under three years now, and maybe I just need a little bit more fine-tuning in recognizing from afar. Or it could be, and this is my actual hypothesis, that because I have so much definition and my own, I'm kind of in my own world, that um, being able to decipher that about a character or being interested maybe even to decipher that about a character that's fictional um, might actually not be as interesting to me or, or something like that. So I'm curious what your process is like. If you read human design, if you're aware of human design, if you have um, you know insight into your own human design, I'm curious what your process is like if you do relate human design to the things that you are um, consuming in terms of like stories, books, movies, etc. Number one, and this was the catalyst of this entire episode, was cognition for me. So my cognition is smell. And if you're not aware of what cognition is, cognition is the super sense that arises when you're living in alignment, but it's also something that contributes to your alignment. So it's, it's, kind of a two-sided coin. Um, So engaging with your cognition and the element of your cognition, the sense that's connected to your cognition, increases your feelings of alignment and vice versa. When you are in your feelings of alignment, your cognition or your sense that's related to your cognition um, grows in strength or increases in strength. So mine is smell. Not only does this mean that I relate and have an awareness for different scents, different smells in a way that's more complex um, when I'm in alignment, so I can really appreciate the different notes of a smell, but it also means that engaging myself with smell and different scents that um, speak to me can increase my pleasure and increase my feelings of alignment. And that's on a like a literal smell level, but we can take it a little bit deeper and go into the more abstract zone. So yes, we're talking about smelling things like sniffing with your nose, but also we're talking about sniffing things out. So investigating, um, finding the pathway towards the truth, that level of awareness is heightened so that we can... Um, have a wider perception of the things going on around us. We can understand the undertones to a situation and relate to it in a way that um, provides us with insight to and intuition to 
um, what needs to happen or what's going to happen. So engaging with the smell cognition is not only about, you know, for me, like, for example, like I said, I have a, a delicious candle going on that increases my pleasure, that increases, increases my feelings of alignment, but it's also about engaging in practices that, um, you know, invite you to sniff things out or to investigate, like I said. So reading for me is a big um, pleasure portal, like I said, but it's a pleasure portal towards my cognition, um, especially if I'm reading something with sort of like twists and turns or maybe a little bit of mystery. Um, this is something that I uh, recognize as being a, a part of my practice of engaging with my own cognition. However, I will say I never thought of romance novels or rom-com novels as um, being very engaging for this sense because, you know, it's not like as in your face as reading a mystery and trying to figure out what happens at the end. Um, it seems a little bit lighter until I read the author's note. Um, and I want to read it for you. Um, not the whole thing, but this one part that really spoke to me and made me think about smell cognition in these types of books in a very different way. So the author, who is Catherine Center, and I'm going to be quoting directly from this book, she says, quote, I fell in love with romance novels. For a long time, if you'd asked me why that was, I'd have shrugged and said, because they're fun. But now, after much overthinking it, I figured out, at least in part, why they're fun. It's because love stories really are unlike any other kind of story. All stories have an emotional engine that drives them. Mysteries run on curiosity, thrillers run on heart-thumping adrenaline, horror stories run on fear. And the fuel for those emotional engines is anticipation. We piece the clues together and predict what's going to happen, and we feel emotions, sometimes very strong ones, about what we're predicting. Stories use different scenarios in different ways to create that anticipation, but most novels use a fair bit of what's called negatively balanced anticipation. A sense of worry, a concern that things might get worse. You know, you're reading along, picking up the breadcrumbs of foreshadowing the writers drop for you, and you're like, oh god, that kid's going to get arrested, or ugh, that man's going to have a heart attack, or I bet you a thousand dollars he's cheating on his wife. But guess what kind of anticipation romance novels use? Positively balanced. Romance novels, rom-coms, non-tragic love stories, they all run on a blissful sense that we're moving towards something better. Percentage-wise, the majority of clues writers drop in romance novels don't give you things to dread. They give you things to look forward to. This right here, more than anything else, is why people love them. The banter, the kissing, the tropes, even the spice, that's all just extra. It's the structure, that predictable structure, that does it. Anticipating that you're heading towards a happy ending lets you relax and look forward to better things ahead. And there's a name for what you're feeling when you do that, hope, unquote. Not only does this relate to my hope motivation and, and hit it right on the head, but again, like I said, it, it broadened my perspective to um, the why I enjoy reading romance novels or rom-com novels. Um, and although they're not right in your face like a mystery novel, 
the there are clues that are being uh like she said, breadcrumbed by the author. There are things that you're anticipating and looking forward to. And um, it's exercising that smell cognition in a different way. So that was really cool to read that author's note and to have my perspective widened a little bit to understand, um, you know, why I enjoy these types of books so much. Not that you necessarily need a reason, <laughs> but it's always fun to have a, a different perspective, I guess. So with all that being said, whenever I read a book, I almost always can figure out what's going to happen. That doesn't change my experience of the book. That doesn't make me not want to read it. It's just that I've gotten really good at sniffing out what's happening um, to the point where, you know, there might be some question marks in other people's minds about could this happen? Could this happen? And I've sort of like sussed out what's actually going to happen based on subtle things that the author has said or different imagery that the author has brought up. Um, and that's part of the fun for me. That's part of the relaxation is actually like sniffing it out. And that's because of my cognition. So like, for example, the book, The Perfect Marriage, and I'm not going to give away that ending, but I was reading that on vacation with my whole family and my sisters and I and my mom um, when we take books on vacation, we'll read them and then we pass them along. So um, that book got passed along. I've got four sisters. Um, we got passed along to almost all of us and we all were sort of trying to figure out what's going on, what's happening. And my mom had read it first. She said, what do you think is going to happen? And I said to a T, what was going to happen? And she was like, I don't know, you'll have to see. <laughs> and then later on, I was like, I knew that was going to happen and she was like, I know I wanted to tell you so bad that you knew what was happening, but I did. I wanted you to continue to enjoy it. So, um, you know, things like that happen. And like I said, it, it doesn't change my enjoyment of the experience at all. Um, but I will say for this book, I had absolutely no idea what was going to happen. And that was a really fun experience for me. As much as I enjoy being able to figure it out, I also really enjoy being stumped. Like she said, there is an element of predictability when it comes to romance novels or rom-coms, and it's interesting because a lot of times in those books, things really write themselves in the end, and, you know, things like, things always work out in a certain way, but a lot of the things that worked out in this book didn't work out in the way that I thought they were going to. Um, I sort of had, like, like, even in this book, she's talking about confirmation bias, and I sort of had confirmation bias going into the later parts of the book, thinking I knew what was going to happen. Um, for example, her not winning the the competition, that was something that I thought I thought she was going to win. I thought she was going to like go through all these different experiments, find a new way, and that people were going to be astounded by it. I did not think that they actually were going to like talk shit about her. <laughs> and if they did, I thought that it was going to be a miscommunication where she thought that they were talking about hers, but they weren't actually talking about hers. But that's not what happens. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting was how um, um, Parker, her, her evil stepsister, how, yes, we found out that um, she was the one that did all these things like Sadie had been saying, However, I thought that the fact that it didn't get all tied up in a bow where she said sorry and, you know, she they're best friends now and um, the family finally uh, 
finally told Scott, told Sadie that um, they believed her and she was vindicated. I thought all that was going to happen, and that didn't happen. And I really appreciated that because I do think that sometimes those nuances in romance novels get tied up too tightly, and it's not reflective of what actually happens with different dynamics of different personalities and different histories between family members, etc. So that was really cool. And then finally, finally, <laughs> the twist at the end where Joe, okay, a couple things, really spoiler alert here. Joe is not only Joe, but he's the vet, but he's also not Joe. <laughs> that was so wild to me. So I knew that Joe, I knew there was something going on. I knew that Okay, number one, I first thought, and this is me getting excited that my mind goes all over the place, so bear with me. Number one, I knew that, um, I, I, I thought that she was going to be falling in love with the veterinarian and, you know, sort of like grandstanding or um, daydreaming about this veterinarian and kind of putting him on the pedestal just because she sort of like does that in her life where she's thinking, okay, everything's going to change now. And she sort of has this big thing and then all of a sudden it lets her down, which is very similar to um, me in terms of like my emotional authority, which I'll talk about in a second. But aside from that, she's, so I'm thinking, okay, she, these people are different people. She's going to like this veterinarian because he looks perfect and then he lets her down. And then the person that she thinks is an asshole, Joe, is actually going to turn out to be someone really great. Um, that's what I thought was going to happen. So I thought that they were separate people. Then we get to the part where she breaks up with the vet, vet, the vet, and um, she she does this like whole thing, and it seems like a little bit like, well, okay, why do you need to do that if he stood you up? You know, X, Y, and Z, and then he has that really strong reaction. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. I wonder why he's having such a strong reaction. Fast forward a little bit to Joe completely ghosting her. Then I started to think, okay, they, these are the same people. These have to be the same people. But in the beginning of the book, in the beginning of our introduction to the vet and our introduction to Joe, I did not think that they would be the same person. I thought that maybe, you know, remember that scene where, she, if you've read it, sorry, if you've not read it, let me tell you what happens. So there's this scene in, in the sort of beginning of the book where she gets into the elevator and Joe always wears this jacket that says Joe on it. And it's like a vintage looking like bowling jacket. And she overhears a conversation where he's being like very awful about this um, woman that he's had this one night stand with. And she sort of writes him off as like this womanizer. Later on, we find out that that wasn't the conversation that she thought it was. He was actually talking about a dog that he was pet sitting. That that also threw me. I thought maybe someone had borrowed Joe's jacket. I thought maybe um, he she had said like it was a new jacket that looked like a hipster. Her words, not mine, had bought it, and you know was trying to be cool and. Um, so I was like, maybe this is like something from Urban Outfitters or like somewhere where a lot of people can get it. it you can get it online. Maybe multiple people have this jacket. Um, but 
yeah, that part where it ended up being about a dog that he was pet sitting, I had to go back once I found that out and reread the passage to see if it made sense. But um, so I knew, I thought that something fishy was going on with Joe in this jacket and whatnot, but I really did not understand that Joe and the vet were the same person until Joe started being upset and um, ghosted her after she broke up with the vet and he would have had no idea of knowing what that was. That was wild. But the, the most wild part, the part that really stumped me was that, and this is silly looking back on it, was that Joe's name is not Joe. <laughs> like, even when I found out that Joe is Oliver, that Joe is the vet, I thought, oh, some people just call him Joe. Like, that must be a nickname. No, it's because she saw his jacket that said Joe and she started calling him that and he thought that she was just being funny. Like, what the fuck? And I really enjoyed at the end how she and Joe, I'm just going to call him Joe because that's how I see him as, um, and that's what she says at the end too. Um, I really enjoyed how they both came to the realization at the same time in their own way. I thought that was really sweet and really like a good ending. So this process of being stumped throughout this book and all the way to the end and then getting to the author's note where she's talking about positive um, valence, I think it's called, things, uh, thing, anticipation that's positively balanced um, was what got me thinking about doing this episode because I was like, this is such a great example of engaging with your cognition, engaging with um, smell cognition in particular, and having a lot of fun with it. So that was the beginning. Then I started to look at different parts of the book and relating it to my own human design again. So actually deepening into the story and looking at the different parts that resonate with me based on my own personal human design. One element that we touched on briefly before is motivation. My personal motivation is hope. And she speaks about this in the author's note with talking about this positively balanced anticipation and how this creates a sense of hope that we're working towards something good or we're working towards a happy ending. And this really speaks to my motivation obvious for obvious reasons. But if you don't know about hope motivation, hope motivation is the motivation or the way that like sort of like the North Star as you're moving through life, um, if you have this motivation to trust that things are working out and things will right themselves or adjust themselves along the way, that there's a bigger message or bigger purpose to things, that all things don't all have to fall on your shoulders in order to work out, that you can sort of let go and trust. Um, when you're not, when you're not living in your alignment or when you are not engaging with your aligned motivation, you'll go into what's called the transferred motivation. And this is not like, you know, a beware, don't go there type thing. This is a necessary element that allows you to bump up against the edges of what's not right for you so that you can fully immerse yourself in what is right for you. My transferred motivation is guilt. And guilt is the opposite of hope in that a guilt motivation tells me that it's my job to decipher the missing piece, to bring forth a solution, to kind of put my hat in the ring in order to make sure that things work out. And for me, tapping into guilt motivation 
and feeling the feelings of stress and um, the heaviness of guilt motivation allows me to understand what it actually truly feels like when I let go and trust. So that's a little bit about hope and guilt motivation from my lens. On another level in this book, I'm thinking about hope and guilt motivation as I'm reading because of the fact that Sadie does not wish to accept help, that she does not feel comfortable accepting help. And she feels as though she has to do things on her own, that she has to figure things out. Up until the very end of the book, even through her diagnosis and even through the, the process of her face blindness and adjusting to that, there are very few people that she tells about this um, thing that she's going through. So she doesn't accept help in that arena, but she also just really has trouble accepting help in general. And I mentioned this before, it's due to the fact that she did feel so much abandonment from her family and did feel like her family didn't have her back or you know, had a perception of her that was based in an untruth that um, really deteriorated the trust between them. So she was forced or forced herself to be very independent and to only rely on herself, which translated into her life outside of things. I can totally relate to this um, I'm in my own way where I used to have a, a big problem asking for help. I had a big problem with thinking that everything needed to fall on my shoulders, that I was supposed to be the one that jumps in and figures things out, that I was supposed to save the day, not only hope, uh, guilt transferred motivation, but also like a five line thing sometimes. Um, and uh, really through my process, I've had to learn about letting people know what you need from them, letting people know how they can help you, how they can support you, voicing your concerns, voicing what you need into the room and trusting that the right people will be there to, to catch you or to offer a, a lending hand or, you know, again, that things will work out and that it's not on all on your shoulders. So that was one thing that really made me think about hope motivation and guilt motivation as I was reading the story is like, when we are so sure that it's all up to us and we push out the people that want to lend a hand to us, are we really negating the availability of possibility and the availability of miracles and the availability of um, outcomes beyond our wildest imagination? So... I think this was really beautifully represented also when um, Sue's family, her best friend's family, went to the art show and purchased the, the, the painting. I think that it was really beautifully represented when she also received um, um, accolades in that, you know, that, that um, person at the end had decided to reach out to her and to represent her and started to sell more of her paintings. I think these are all things that she could not see as possibilities because she was so focused on her role in the competition and what she needed to do in order to prove herself and to make sure that she was okay. So she thought that the goal was figure out a way to win the competition to make $10,000 and what ended up happening was that she lost the competition, she found a new way of painting, a new way of expressing herself, and she ended up making more than that, because, or even 
I, if not, if maybe the same, if not more, because of the fact that at the end they're talking about how she sold multiple paintings and they were for $3,000 each. I don't remember how many paintings she sold. So it's either 10,000 or more and, and the possibility of more work, which if it was just about this one competition, she would have had the $10,000 and then it would be like, okay, well, what's next? What do I need to do next to make sure that I make this $10,000 last or that I have, you know, a next opportunity, for example. This was the one area that I will say I was interested to know what Sadie's human design was. Um, I was wondering maybe if she had an open G center or undefined G center or an open or undefined heart center because of the fact that her process throughout this book was really about finding direction and about learning her own self-worth and her own value. So in relation to this hope motivation and this unfolding into the person that can accept help and can accept love in all of its different forms, um, that was something that did come up where I was curious about her experience rather than viewing it through the lens of mine. The other thing that I really was finding resonance with in her journey and my journey was the, the journey of the three line um, and also the five line. I'm a three five, but the process where she had to learn a new way to paint and had to experiment with the things that she had in order to reach this end goal of painting this portrait, um, I thought was really indicative of the experimenter like the three line is she had to try a bunch of different things to figure out what did or didn't work and then at the end you know things unfold and she finds a way that produces an outcome that gets her to a new result so something that hasn't been done before because she's taking all the scraps of all these different things. So this person online with this said that they do this. This person suggested this. This is something I've tried before. This is an unrelated way that someone did something um, that I might be able to try here or might be able to do par part of this for um, different things like that. And that's really what we do as three lines is we take different elements of what people have done before um, what we've seen people do before, what they've described that they've done before. And we try it on for size, trying to figure out, does that process work for me too in my own experience? Or is there something different that I can create with these pieces? Um, her process for finding her own way of painting rather than just recreating her mother's way um, while she was face blind and, you know, that ended up being something that she uh, utilized after her condition got better, uh, I thought was really, really interesting and so true for the three-line process. And then on the, the tail end of that, the fact that there were some people that absolutely hated the end result and there were some people that absolutely loved the end result, I really feel is, is part of that five-line experience where, um, or I can relate to via my five-line experience where there are some things that you do as a five-line that meet people's expectations and they love you for it or they they warp you based on their perception of you and they love you for it or vice versa they hate it they hate you for it and um yeah I think the, her process of accepting that people didn't love it and accepting the accolades 
from the people that did was a very five line journey um, in my in my perspective. And the last thing that I'll bring up was the um, part about emotional authority that I was noticing. So for me, I'm an emotional authority and I have the 3635 channel, which is an, part of the abstract wave. And this channel evokes sensations of expectation versus reality. So I have very high expectations about things. And rather than focusing on the joy of the experience or the experiment or the process, I sometimes can focus on what's going to happen at the end, what's going to happen when I hit that, you know, climax of the thing that I'm doing. And I propose that it's going to be very blissful. I propose that everything's going to work out X, Y, and Z. And then reality sets in and it doesn't meet my expectations. So this whole process of getting to this point, I've not been embodied in my joy of the experience. I've just been sort of holding out hope for this end result. And then when it doesn't meet the the expectations that I've set forth, the whole thing sort of sours. Um, I definitely saw this with, like, saw myself through Sadie's experience with this where, you know, a lot of her process was trying to figure out how to do something like we talked about three lining her way through it trying to figure out how to how to paint the thing that was going to be acceptable in the portrait um, society competition and it wasn't until she actually took a step back and decided i'm gonna enjoy the experience of working through this problem that she ended up having a good experience as a whole. Um, Maybe she felt accomplished that she figured out a a certain amount of things as she was kind of bumping into the edges of three-line experimentation, but there always was that element of she texts her friend Sue who says, you know, this doesn't look good or whatever it may be, and then she falls and she gets disappointed and she goes into this process of, you know, this is never going to work, like different things like that. And then you know, when she finally does allow herself to enjoy the process, even though the result is not something that's going to win her the competition, she fully enjoyed the experience. And of course, there's a part about that with, with the spice that happened, the mids, the, the low level spice that I will say was in this book. Um, there was a process that, you know, obviously was very enjoyable for her, but at the end of the day, um, I think it's it's a it's a testament to the joy and the pleasure that can come through the anticipation or can even come before the anticipation of something. And as someone that has an emotional authority with that 3635 channel, that is something that I'm constantly reminding myself of is that there has to be joy in the process. There has to be joy in the experience. So that regardless of what happens at the end of the road, there has been joy, there has been pleasure. I also saw a lot of emotional um, material in terms of her decision making um, or related to the emotions that came through when she was making her decisions um, in a very big way. 
So as an emotional authority, I'm meant to go through highs and lows until I reach a sense of clarity. And from that clarity space, that's when I can really make an embodied decision. I saw her go through so many emotions, go through so many iterations of thought processes about, is this going to work out? Is this not going to work out? Being on the high of everything's going to work out and I'm going to do this and being on the low of nothing works for me. I should just give up now, X, Y, and Z. And then, you know, reaching clarity in some instances of this is the action that I'm going to take. And I really related to that. Um, Some of those emotionally charged decisions that I'll just point to if you're interested in like looking back is when she just makes the decision to get the surgery, that was something that was very emotionally charged. She had sort of logicked it out in her mind to say, I'm going to do this after my, you know, portrait society um, competition because I need the money and this is the way that it's organized. And then her dad brings up that her mother also had this, um, this, this thing going on in her brain. And so that in, increased the emotionality of the situation. And from there, she you know, took the process forward. Um, the other thing that was interesting from the emotional lens is leaving that voicemail for Joe and feeling very clear in her reasoning for leaving the voicemail for Joe and then afterwards when she woke up regretting it and and being upset with herself for it there's been so many times where I have done things you know not like that but done things maybe like that maybe in some of my younger days but there has been so many times where I've done things before I got to a full sense of clarity where I ended up going on another emotional wave afterwards where I was like, that was, that was perfect. I'm so glad that I did that. And, you know, two seconds later, like, why did I do that? <laughs> like, this is not going to work out. Um, so, you know, things ended up working out for her in the, in the end. And she was just taking that next step forward based on where her body was leading her. And, um, you know, from the emotional lens, it's, it's really interesting um, to see how things can play out in that way and to really relate to it in that way. This has been so much fun to record this episode for you. I'm feeling this overflowing sacral energy, this big sacral mm mm-hmm. And um, I'm so excited that I did this and that I followed the sacral pull to do it. Um, I hope that it was really interesting for you. I hope that you had fun. I hope that if you've read the book that you enjoyed my perspective. I hope that if you haven't read the book and you don't mind spoilers that you go ahead and read it because it was very good. I'd give it, on Goodreads, I gave it a four out of four. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I will say there was like minimal spice, which I said. Um, So if you're looking for spice, this is not the book for that, but it is a very good book and um, I would totally recommend it. If you love this episode, if you love this theme of episode where we're talking about books through the lens of human design and you want more, please let me know. Um, just telling you right now, based on this feeling that I'm having, if this is something that I'm going to continue. Um, I've also been playing with the idea of bringing on a couple of other people with different designs than mine in order to talk about books that we read together, almost like a book club. So if you're listening and you're interested in joining me for that, send me a message, send me an email, um, and let me know that you're interested. I will be putting something out, hopefully, um, in the next couple weeks about joining that, um, which is 
again, something that I've been playing with in my mind. And it wasn't until I did this episode and experienced the process of doing it that I was like, yes, let's do it. So, and have that clarity. So, um, so yeah, so if you're interested, please let me know. If you enjoyed this, let me know. And if you're interested in learning more about your human design and you want someone to walk you through these different elements like I did here today, but through the lens of your unique human design, you can look on my website, www.resilientandrising.com. You can also check out the links below in order to see the offerings that I have, including personal human design readings, human design immersions, and coaching packages. Thank you for so much fun once again, and I'll see you next time.